This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mogul, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Sometimes there are historical eras, entire historical movements and moments in history that are distant from us, our knowledge and our imagination. They do not reside in our thinking as they know that they should. Usually those periods of time reside somewhere far back in our history, some far back in the history of the centuries before us. But in the case of the Cold War, there is a very, very dangerous forgetfulness that has taken place about a period of life that is very, very near to us, and with issues that are, if anything, not over. Paul Kinger is professor of political science at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. He is executive director of the Center for Vision and Values there and also serves as a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution on War, Revolution, and Peace at Stanford University. He's one of America's major public intellectuals, often quoted in America's newspapers, published in its academic journals. His latest book is entitled Dupes, How America's Adversaries Have Manipulated Progressives for a Century. Professor Kinger, welcome to Thinking in Public. Dr. Bowler, it's an honor to be on with you. Thank you. I read your, your latest book with a great deal of interest. I've followed your work uh, prior to this. And uh, you are a man who takes ideas seriously. So just as we begin this conversation, how did you enter into uh, a life committed to the world of ideas? Well, uh, it's interesting. I, uh, when the Cold War was sort of um, raging and ending, and that would have been the period of about 1982-1983, which some regard as the hottest year in the Cold War, um, you know, or at least since the late 1940s, and um, and 1989 when the when the Berlin Wall collapsed, I was I was a student during during that period. Um, I graduated high school in 1984, and I was in college, undergrad through masters and uh, PhD program, basically from the latter 1980s. Um, you know, left a couple of times to, to work off and on to the early 1990s. And so it was really the sort of the, the formative period of my life. Historically, what was going on in the news was, was the collapse of communism and the end of the Cold War. And uh, I, was, I was actually a pre-med major at the University of Pittsburgh. I, I, was, I was working for, of all things, the organ transplant team. <laughs> There and and took my first job there after graduation and thought I would be a, an MD, but I became so fascinated by these events. Uh, you know, here's something maybe young people can't quite appreciate today, but uh, you know, I still remember duck and cover drills, and you know, drills during elementary school where we prepared Absolutely. for a nuclear attack, right? And uh, and so to try to understand how this all ended, and ended so peacefully, and, and ended, as I could plainly see, with the critical aid of people like Ronald Reagan in the United States, while my professors and other people had just got done spending a few years saying what an idiot Reagan was, he didn't know anything, and now all of a sudden everything Reagan said and predicted had just come true, uh, I, I, I wanted to find out how this happened. So I started researching the end of the Cold War, really in the 1990s, spent all the 1990s doing that, um, came out with a book in 2004 called God and Ronald Reagan, which is really a Cold War-based book, and then another book on Reagan called The Crusader, uh, Ronald Reagan, The Fall of Communism. 
other books as well, but but it was really those two that sort of laid the foundation for, for my research and into the Cold War and uh, former Soviet Union and American Communist Party. You know, you've, I'm fascinated by the fact you brought up the duck and cover drills. I'm a bit older than you are, and I grew up mm-hmm. in South Florida, uh, very close to the action, so to speak, uh, with yeah. the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, happening uh, in in my infancy. But, right. uh, you know, I grew up with B-52 bombers having a constant flight pattern over South Florida wow. all the time. And, and so yeah. I, I, I grew up between, at one point, uh, two uh, Air Force bases, McDill and McCoy. And there was constant strategic air command air cover over Florida all the time. We were just simply so close to Cuba and, uh, right. and to submarines and, and, and all the rest. And I can remember having two things happen simultaneously, Professor. One of them was I was in about the seventh grade. When we, we had not only the duck and cover drills, uh, but we also had a, a, a very clear presentation on what a nuclear attack would actually be like. And, and I was, as a 13-year-old, sitting there thinking, you know, I don't think standing or, or crouching under a desk with a piece of aluminum foil over my head is going to do a whole lot of good. <laughs> we, we had recently here in Grove City, I, I took some college students around to um, kind of semi-officially designated fallout shelters in town. And I was amazed that one of them was my old church, Tower Presbyterian Church. And when I saw what was considered the, the, the bomb shelter, it was, it was basically a furnace room with a yeah. screen door in the back. And, and I thought, you know, there's, there's just no way that, that, that we would have survived us. And, and, you know, young people today, they just, they have no comprehension, no understanding uh, not even an inkling of just how serious the threat was and how we've averted calamity. I, I mean, when, when, when you and I were, were, the, were the age of college students and high school students today, uh, I, I mean, we, we could not have imagined that the Cold War would end, the Soviet Union would disintegrate, the, the communist bloc and Berlin Wall would crumble, all by 1989, and without a shot or missile fired, and without nuclear Armageddon. And, and the fact that it didn't happen is something we had to get on our knees and, and, and pray to God out of gratitude for Absolutely. Um, every day, but we take it for granted. We didn't even think about it. Well, we take it for granted. Partly, uh, our generation is far more guilty for that, because we, we lived it, so we know just what a miracle yeah. that was, literally. Uh, we don't teach it enough. We, we, we can forgive the younger generation for not knowing until we tell them. But that requires us to tell a story, and I'm going to ask you to do that right now. I'd, I'd like for you to kind of tell us an encapsulated story of the history of the Cold War, because I think just fixing this as a as a one of the most significant historical periods of, of not only our lifetimes but of our nation's existence is actually essential to understanding where we are today. Sure. Well, I mean, the Cold War. You know, if you, if you do most Google searches on it, you'd probably find that it's defined as starting in the latter 1940s, after World War II. Uh, basically, when, when the Soviets stayed in Eastern Europe, uh, when Stalin blockaded all of Berlin from 1948 to 49, when uh, the, 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 the Prague coup happened in Czechoslovakia in 1948, so they usually usually pinpointed around that time, 1947, 48, and 49. Uh, I think you could take it back to 1917 with, with the founding of the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, some scholars, such as Richard Pipes, the, the great Harvard uh, Sovietologist who is, um, has been at Harvard since 1950, he's Professor Emeritus, and, and Pipes traces it back to 1919 with the founding of the Soviet Comintern. Uh, the Communist International. 
And right there, Dr. Mahler, that's something that if we just taught young people what the common turn was, which I didn't learn about in the 1980s, uh, that right there would have established the threat and what this was all about. Uh, the, the Communist International Common Turn was founded in Moscow in March of 1919, and the goal of this group, it was headquartered in Moscow, and the goal was to establish a communist party in every country in the world. And, and notice I said singular, communist party. There couldn't be communist parties in each country. There could only be one in each country. And all of these would answer with absolute servile, I mean, you know, unquestioned authority, they all answered to Moscow. Uh, you know, the common turn would be sort of the director of the global symphony. So, so that was established in Moscow in March of 1919. In America, in Chicago, in September 1919, September 1919, about six months after that, the American Communist Party was founded. And, uh, you know, right from the outset, from the very beginning, in fact, you know, I, I have been in fact, I literally have them right here on, on my desk, and they're, they're in the book, too, in the book, Dupes. Um, the, the original um, dispatches sent from Chicago to Moscow saying, uh, you know, reporting, you know, comrades, we did it. Long live the great Soviet, Soviet Republic. Long live the Comintern. I mean, they start talking about a Soviet-American Republic living under the Soviet Constitution from the very beginning. Um, so the American Party, uh, the Daily Worker, its house organ, they were all creatures of the Soviet Union. They answered to the Soviet Union. The people who ran the party, ran the Daily Worker, were hired and fired and approved by the Soviet Union. And they even received subsidies from the Soviet Union throughout the entirety of the Cold War all the way to the 1980s. And so, I mean, this, this, is, what, this is why this was a threat. Um, a, a, American communists, we're not just, uh, you know, another brand of leftists practicing another form of, 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 of politics, like a socialist or, or you know, further down on, on, the, on the leftward part of the spectrum toward the middle, like Democrats or, or, or liberals. I mean, American communists considered themselves loyal Soviet patriots. I mean, their country was the Soviet Union. That, that was their first priority, and they were all conflicted, actually some weren't conflicted at all, as to who, who they would fight for in a war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, our Congress realized this, and uh, even before Republicans like Joe McCarthy, um, liberal Democrats like uh, Woodrow Wilson, his attorney general, Alexander Mitchell Palmer, um, Martin Dyes, the Texas Democrat, first head of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, they all began looking into this in the 1910s, 20s, and 30s, um, long before Joe McCarthy and, and folks came on the scene. You know, so, uh, apart, um, that's kind of a thumbnail sketch. You know, one of the things I want to get to here is, is why communism reminds us that we are constantly in a war of ideas. But just to put this in a historical context, uh, there is a new biography out about uh, someone who is undoubtedly a minor figure on the international scene, and that is Prince Philip of Great Britain. Uh, mm. Queen Elizabeth II's consort husband, and uh, you know, so you look, but he's still alive today, and and, and still, uh, you know, very much a part of the ceremonial life of Great Britain. And you look at this man, and most people looking at him just think he's uh, the Queen's husband, but, but actually, uh, he was both uh, a German and a Greek prince, and his uncle was uh, one of the Grand Dukes of of Tsarist Russia, and, and so you're looking at a man who, as a boy 
experienced yeah. the death of one of his uncles as a Grand Duke of Russia and I the falling apart that. of an entire empire, uh, you know, in, in which uh, all, all of his sisters had married German nobles before uh, the Second World War, and they all became Nazis. And, mm-hmm. and so you're looking at this, and you realize th- this man is still alive. And so I, I was talking to one of my students the other day. I said, I said, number one, you don't necessarily need to read that biography, just, but just look at that man for a moment and realize that his uncle— uh, was executed by the Soviets uh, in in, <laughs> yeah. in in the, uh, in the Bolshevik Revolution. R- recognized that his sisters uh, were were unable to come to his wedding because they had been Nazis. And, and you, you just you just realize that this is living history. You're looking at a man who's still alive because students today, and I understand this. We we have the 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 temporal kind of uh, temptation that comes to us all the time to look at our own times and say, well, look, this is this is simply the present, and, and the past yeah. is way back there in the past. But in terms of the communist threat. Well, you're right. You can take this all the way back, of course, to the Bolshevik Revolution, but we need to take it back further than that. In terms of the war of ideas, we need to go back to the 19th century and recognize that communism was recognized long before the Bolshevik Revolution as a major ideological challenge to everything Western civilization understood. Well, Whitaker Chambers took it back further than that. Uh, Whitaker Chambers said that the the mistake of of the communists uh, goes back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, Ye shall be as gods. And, uh, and, and you know, that's essentially what they did. They, they rejected religion, they rejected Christianity, and, uh, and they set up themselves as, as infallible authorities. Uh, and, I mean, there, there's, there's never been a more anti-religious revolution in all of history than the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, you know, Marx said, called religion the opiate of the masses. People have heard that quote before, but Marx also said, that um, communism begins where atheism begins. Uh, Lenin, who came in well after Marx, Marx published the Communist Manifesto in 1848. Uh, Vladimir Lenin, first head of the Soviet Union, 1917 to 1924, he said there's nothing more abominable than religion. Um, all worship of any divinity is a necrophilia. That's, that's how he referred to religion. I mean, contrast this to the American founders. You know, take any of those quotes from, from, from early communists, Marxist, Leninist, Soviets, and compare them to the words of, uh, of, of Washington or John Adams. I mean, you know, truly, truly godly men who talked about the importance of, of faith and morality in public life. Washington, in farewell address, uh, talking about how religion and morality are indispensable supports to political success. You know, the, the Bolsheviks saw their political success as dependent upon um, eliminating religion and and redefining morality in their own image. Absolutely, and of course, you could draw direct lines of ideological progression. You could connect all the dots here because, beginning with a, a, a fundamentally atheistic understanding of of everything, including humanity, then the Soviets were able to create a very artificial understanding of a, of a, an idealized humanity. But they were also able to deny basic human rights in light of their greater purpose, which was the communist revolution, the uh, the the. Yeah. the uh, the, the, the rise of the new communist man and their own form of eschatology. And, and that gets to the point I want to raise here, and that is, I think, again, most Americans, regardless of age, uh, just do not think through the fact that communism offered an entirely uh, contradictory worldview to that of Western civilization. And, of course, Christianity being at the heart of Western civilization. But uh, you, you can't talk about Marxism without saying it had its own doctrine of creation. It had its own doctrine of the fall. It had its own doctrine of redemption. It had its own doctrine of eschatology. Yes, it did. That, that's absolutely right. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. 
the case of Harry Cantor, who was a, um, the chief of Communist Party USA in, in Boston, and he's um, actually rooted in the past of, of David, David Axelrod, of all things. And um, and he he refused to have a rabbi at his wedding, and he said he said it's not that I'm I'm non-religious, it's not that I'm a, a non-religious Jew, it's that I'm anti-religious, <laughs> and, I mean, and and you know that's 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 where where these these communists were, and American communists were, were the same way, uh, and and unfortunately today, um, I, I think that our our historians, the people who write our textbooks, who write a lot of our history books. They tend to be people from the left, especially from from the academic left. And you know, while they are adequately and rightly outraged by the Nazis and the fascists, which they should be, and we all are, and we don't forget that, and we can't ever forget that what the Nazis and fascists did. Uh, they they just don't have a same level of outrage for what the far left did. Yeah, no. One of the things we we need. Yeah, I think one of the things we need to posit here is, by the way. The fact that when Hitler came to power in Germany, one of the central energizing factors of his popularity, and again, uh, uh, Americans tend to forget the fact that he was elected uh, to, to power, and his party was elected to power in, in Germany. And certainly he used extra-constitutional means to consolidate that power, but, but he, he, it was not uh, the same kind of revolution that took place uh, in the Soviet Union. But my point here is, right. is that Hitler and the Nazis said it's either it's either the Nazis or it's the Bolsheviks. In other words, communism was held up as that thing worse than uh, than their own agenda. That they, they were the saviors of Germany from communism. Well, that's right, and and I and I mean, you know, that went uh, the Spanish Civil War, same same kind of thing, and uh, you know, a lot of um, this is why a lot of Christians, uh, you know, it, at the time and. I mean, we, 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 we knew that communism was worse. I mean, we, we, just, we, we, we just, we knew that. We, we knew it was a more vicious ideology. And I, and I think one of the things, too, is, is that it, how is it worse? Well, it, 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 Nazism, when you boiled it down and everybody looked at it, it, it didn't have any appeal. I, I, mean, I mean, outside of Germany, people all over the world looked at this and said, oh, this is just, this is just barbarism. There's no appeal here. Uh, but but the dangerous thing about communism was was that it had appeal and still does to this day to many people on the left. Well, the main point uh, here to, to raise just to, to affirm that is the fact that you could actually talk about communist or Marxist intellectuals. There yeah, is no right. there is no list of Nazi intellectuals. It, <laughs> right. it, it was not really a, a war of ideas. And and one final thing on that. One of the things that should at least cause us to have a, a bit of of thankfulness is the fact that there is. There is universal moral outrage, to say the very least, at the Nazi regime, at Hitler, mm-hmm. and, and at his deeds. But what, what should frighten us, I think, is the fact that, uh, as Zbigniew Brzezinski, former national security advisor to President Jimmy Carter, of all people, said, you know, uh, it, it, is, it is absolute insanity to condemn the Nazis without recognizing that the Soviets and the Chinese communists killed tens of millions more, indeed, you know, potentially as many as 250 million people in the 20th century. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, the, the Nazis, Hitler killed anywhere from 6 to 10 million. Uh, about 6 million Jews um, add in other people that he classified as, as mis- misfits, social, uh, socially undesirables, and it, t- it goes up to about 10 million. Uh, but the communists killed at a minimum 100 million. Um, it's 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 definitely in the hundred to one hundred forty million range, clo- closer to there. So so it, it dwarfs it by comparison. 
and 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 what and what happens is is, is the communists still to this day, and there's not as many now as there as there once were, but they're still out there, and, and you know they'll push certain hot buttons that that appeal to the progressive socialist left, and and, and I'm sad to report that that they do this as well with religious left social justice Christians, and in fact that's a that's a big focus of mine in dupes is, is the incredible success that they've had. I mean the you know, they'll go to them and, and talk about wealth redistribution, helping the poor, how Jesus wanted to help the poor. I mean, imagine communists talking about how Jesus wanted to help the poor. They don't care about Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. But, 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 they'll, but they'll use this to appeal to the religious left. And, and just in the, in the last few weeks, uh, Jim Wallace of Sojourners, and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the you know, high priest of, of the modern religious left, and I've met him, he's a nice guy, he's a decent guy, but he, he wrote a piece on how uh, churches in the New York area during Thanksgiving should uh, take in the Occupy Wall Street folks, bring them in. And his purpose here wasn't reach out to these people and, and help them because they're needy, they're like the wounded traveler on the road to Jericho, although I'm certain, I'm sure that he'd want to minister to some of them and try to share the gospel with them. But Wallace's point was, you know, you know look, we have a lot of commonality here. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we both realize that, that, that the rich are bad, uh, that there's these great economic injustices in, in our society. So, so, I mean, still to this day, you have, you have the farthest extremes of the left appealing to the religious left and doing so with, uh, with unfortunately, great success. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm very glad that we're able to have this conversation looking at the past when we talk about the Cold War rather than the present. I'm thankful that in terms of the active danger of the Cold War, all that came to an end with the breakup of the Soviet Union and with the fall of the Russian challenge in terms of world communism. But when you come to the issues that were of crucial interest and of conflict during the Cold War, if anything, they continue. And that's why the conversation also needs to continue. I think one of the big issues, Professor Kinger, in thinking about uh, the Cold War is the fact that there were many people uh, who certainly would identify themselves as Christians in America who listened to the, the message of world communism and thought, uh, well, there's something there perhaps we ought to hear. There, 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 is, uh, there is an attractiveness to some. I think uh, many people today would be shocked to know that a good many people in the mainline Protestant churches actually more or less became fellow travelers with the communists in their revolution. Yeah, they did, and and again, it was a certain sympathies that they had that they shared: workers' rights, civil rights, wealth redistribution, and the communists ex- exploited that trust. When when I first started researching um, how communists duped um, American communists duped American liberals and, and progressives, I, I and I and I saw this because I was I was reading through the the Soviet Comintern archives on Communist Party USA, which had been declassified. And we now have those, and I, and I was reading through them, and I'm wondering, you know, what do I do with this material? How does this relate to research I'm doing on this book and that book? And and pretty soon I realized that you know just how cynical, and and how strategic the whole the whole duping process was. And I said, oh, I'm going to have to do an entire separate study just on this. But I I talked to Herb Romerstein, and who, who's still alive. He's America's foremost living expert on communism. Um, he himself had been a communist at one point. 
He's the Venona Papers guy who decrypted a lot of the, the Venona Papers. And I started researching this whole dupes area, and I, and I said, Herb, was, was there one group in particular that the communists had their most success duping in America? And he didn't, he didn't hesitate, Dr. Mueller. He said, yes, re- religious left, the religious left. And I'll never forget, he said, they were the biggest suckers of them all. Uh, that's a term that was used oftentimes, suckers, in the 1940s, 1950s. He said the religious left were the biggest suckers of them all. And, and I found that uh, narrowing that considerably, it, it was the Episcopal Church, the Methodist Church, and Presbyterian Church USA. Uh, those, those were really the three where they had their greatest success. And let's talk about, in, for in a other moment, words, yeah. among liberal Christians. Sure, let's talk about why that might be so. And, 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 let's, uh, and you, you certainly made reference to this already, but let's imagine that there's already been a transformation in liberal Protestantism in America, because there had been. And, and certainly yeah. by the time you come from the late 19th to the early 20th century, you have, amongst mainline Protestants, a loss of conviction in biblical Christianity, a, a loss of conviction in the supernatural, a loss of conviction which led them to largely repudiate Christian orthodoxy. And, and then the question was, well, then, if that no longer is understood to be true, and if that no longer works, then then how in the world are we going to achieve any kind of change? And And that became their great concern. Liberal Protestantism became the big platform for social activism and, right. and, uh, and, and all that came with that and political organizing. By the time you get to, and, and, and people often think, well, that's a post-Cold War development or, or I mean, a post-World War II development. No, it began very early. And, uh, and certainly during the Great Depression, certainly uh, gained a great deal of acceleration. So when you look at this, I mean, wouldn't you say that in one sense, communism came at, uh, well, what you say, a, a very opportune moment for liberal Protestantism in the United States. Yeah, it did. In, in, fact, in fact, the timing between the, the progressive rise in the United States in the 1910s and 1920s and early 1930s and the Bolshevik Revolution was, was just um, horrible. And, 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 it, and it's one of the reasons why, you know, I as a Christian, I don't know if I could, I can't prove this as a scholar, but as a Christian, why I sense spiritual warfare and a, and a spiritual battle underlying all of this, as if you know Satan sees his opportunity and, and, and knows where to go. And, and you have this progressive movement in the 1910s and 1920s in the United States where um, they don't want to ban all private property like Marx writes about in the Communist Manifesto. In fact, the Communist Manifesto, Marx writes, the entire communist program may be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. Now, the progressives don't want to abolish all private property, but they'll abolish some of it. Um, the progressives don't want um, to abolish all rights of inheritance, but they'll have an inheritance tax of 30, 40, 50 percent if they need to to redistribute it. Marx wanted to abolish all inheritance. Uh, you know, Marx also talked in his 10 point plan about implementing a, a graduated or progressive income tax. Well, that's exactly what we got through Woodrow Wilson and the progressives in 1913 when our Constitution had to be amended to allow for a graduated progressive income tax. So, so they're, they're looking at these, these American progressives and social justice Christians, they're looking at what's happening in the Soviet Union in the 1920s, 1910s, 20s, and early 1930s, and they're thinking, you know, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the brave new world. And, and there were folks like Harry Ward, of, of um, Methodist minister in the 1920s, who founded the ACLU with Roger Baldwin, who 
gets sabbatical from Union Theological Seminary in New York in the 1930s to go spend a year in the Soviet Union studying. And believe me, it's not just studying. He's in awe while he's over there. And, and, and he came back uh, and you know, wrote books based on that sabbatical money, including a 1934 book called, called the, uh, Soviet Spirit, the Soviet Spirit, which um, I've got the, the page in the Daily Worker. Daily Worker gave an entire page, uh, Q&A with uh, Harry Ward, just glowing about this wonderful book that Dr. Ward had written on the Soviet Union. Uh, masses and Mainstream, New Masses, uh, these, these publications, New Masses, was edited by Whitaker Chambers while he was a Soviet spy um, in the United States. New Masses was giving away a copy of Harry Ward's The Soviet Spirit, uh, along with the Communist Manifesto, uh, in exchange for purchasing a one-year subscription to New Masses. So, so you know, we, you had social justice progressive pastors like Harry Ward, he's just one example, who believed um, they were sort of fellow travelers going along a similar path. And uh, by golly, yeah, the Soviets, yeah, they might be a little atheistic. <laughs> you know, they might have this whole anti-God thing. They may, may be blowing up a church here and there, but, eh, you know, like, like uh, Trotsky said, we're not going to enter into the kingdom of socialism on a polished floor with white gloves. Uh, but, you know, in the end here, they, they, they may have the right idea, and, and uh, maybe this is where we need to go. I think one of the figures most formative in terms of, of American modernity is often neglected, and certainly by those who are trying to think about our times and, and to our peril, and that is John Dewey. And in, in terms of John Dewey's multiple lines of influence, but in particular, for instance, his, uh, his understanding of the common school, uh, certainly the singular most uh, important thinker in terms of the history of the public school in the, in the 20th century in, in the United States— but he's a major figure of your concern as well. And I think one of the most, well, interesting and perhaps informative kinds of profiles that you deal with in your book. Tell us the story of John Dewey. Well, I was horrified, and I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was, to find that uh, the Soviets absolutely adored John Dewey. And they saw his books, especially Democracy and Education, which you can find in any education department at any school in America, at least most typical secular schools, which is most American colleges, um, the, the Soviets were rapidly translating Dewey's works into Russian. Um, they, they, they were getting them out there as quickly as they could. And, and, and I went through, Dr. Moeller, and I started just counting the number of Dewey works that the Soviets were translating. And, I, I mean... 1918 to 1921, the Bolsheviks are in, are in a fight for their lives. It's the Russian Civil War, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. I mean, seven million people, men, women, and children, were killed in Russia during that period. I mean, they don't have time to be translating books in, into Russian. But, but they consider John Dewey's ideas, which are at the core of American public education, our public education system, they consider John Dewey's words and works so fundamental to what the Soviet communist totalitarian state wanted to do that, that they translated his works as quickly as possible. This was considered one of their highest priorities. And, and, and Dewey, I, what I first learned that, Dr. Mueller, and then I thought, well, boy, I bet Dewey's probably running from this like the plague. Well, well, well Dewey, when he finds out about this, is flattered. He's like, oh, 
you know, this is wonderful. I, 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 I'm humbled by this. So, so the Soviets, toward, toward the end of the 1920s, uh, did to Dewey what they did to most other progressives in America. They invited them over. Um, they invited them over, got on a boat, went over there. They gave them the full, uh, full Potemkin village treatment, took them to all the phony factories and phony kindergartens and phony plants and, and uh, showed them what the brave new world looked like. And Dewey came back to the United States, wrote a six-part series for the New Republic, uh, at the end of that year, just just glowing about about the the brave new experiment that that he had found in the Soviet Union, especially with public education, uh, and it was he eventually turned it into a book, published it as as a book as well. So they they had they had a mutual admiration society, John Dewey and the Bolsheviks. Well, how did that end in terms of Dewey's very long life? Did Dewey look back over his life and recognize that that, that he had played this role, that he had indeed uh, uh, been complicit in so much of this? Well, I don't think he ever regretted that, but he, but he did. He was, by the end of his life, very anti-Stalin, and and that happened with uh, the 1930s. And, and here, too, Dewey's manipulated somewhat. Um, he's meeting with Trotskyists in the United States, with um, socialists, progressives, closet communists, open communists, um, who had become disenchanted with Stalin. Uh, not all of them. I mean, CPUSA, Communist Party U- USA, and the Daily Worker. I mean, you, you know, you, if you were loyal to the Soviet Union, you were loyal to Stalin. Period. But a lot of American communists, especially Jewish American communists, um, split with with Stalin. They split with them over Stalin's split with Trotsky. And also after the signing of the Hitler-Stalin Pact in 1939, although that would come a little bit later. But um, Dewey ended up heading the, the so-called Dewey Commission that looked into the persecution of Trotsky by Stalin and the Kremlin in 1936-1937. And, uh, and through that, Dewey came to be anti-Stalin and actually did some, did some very good work opposing Stalin through the Dewey Commission. And uh, and the Soviets ended up blasting Dewey for that. So they ended up Dewey ended up becoming persona non grata in the Soviet Union because of that. But for a period from you know the early 1920s to about the mid 1930s, Dewey was way out there. And uh, I quote him in the book: um, "You could have probably called him um, a lower lowercase communist, uh, lower C, as in." a communist who believed in the communist ideology, um, even though he was never an actual Communist Party member. Um, by the end of his life, I think he was more of, of a socialist progressive generally. But, but the Dewey of the 1920s and early 1930s, it's pretty ugly, and, and that's precisely during the time that he was at Columbia doing all this educational work uh, that today is foundational for the American public educational system, and that's no exaggeration. Well, absolutely not, and, and it is no exaggeration to say he is the singular most influential figure in the shape of, of public education today. And, yeah, and you and, won't learn any of this, yeah. any of this, in education departments or education programs. No, but let me, let me connect a couple of dots here in, in a way that I think many people don't understand. Uh, again, the, the generation that didn't have to confront the Cold War and, and, and certainly has come to adulthood after the Cold War doesn't understand that communism held itself uh, to be an ideology superior to that of the family, such that it would willingly turn children uh, against their parents. Uh, you, you had 
the, the, the Communist Youth League lionizing, uh, presenting medals in the names of, of boys who had turned in their fathers to be executed as enemies of the regime and things like this. And, uh, and yet then you look at John Dewey, and, and Americans don't recognize that John Dewey held that the central importance of the public school was to separate children from the prejudices of their parents. Yes, yes. No, that's exactly right. And, and here, here, too, in fact, in, in many of these cases, you'll have, um, I've been through this a million times, liberals and progressives in the United States will say, well, that was the Stalinization of the Soviet system. No, no, no. Not only did Stalin do it, everybody before and after did it, Lenin did it, and if you want to take it right back to, to Marx himself, I mean, I, I, it drives me nuts, Dr. Mueller, when I hear people say, well, if you just read the Communist Manifesto, it's a pretty good book. No, it isn't. And I know that when somebody says that, that they haven't actually read it. Absolutely. And, I mean, right here at page 71 of the Communist Manifesto, this is the Penguin Sigma Classics edition, uh, paragraph 2, page 71, Abolition of the Family. Exclamation mark. Uh, you know, paragraph three: The bourgeois family will vanish as a matter of course. Um, paragraph five: But you will say we destroy the most hallowed of relations when we replace home education by social. And uh, and point ten of Marx's ten point plan, and it, it actually says this: uh, Free education for all children in public schools. Now, now, Marx was writing that in 1848, uh, and, and, and what's, what's even more disturbing about, about this is anyone listening to our conversation right now who's from the left would just shake their heads at us and say, boy, what are you two, Joe McCarthy? What has, uh, you know, as, McCar- as, as Dr. Ken Gore, has the ghost of Joe McCarthy just flown into your body right now? Uh, they're, they're appalled by our anti-communism. Right. Uh, so it, it's uh, the, the left has, has never been good on, on all of this. They've been wrong about communism from the very beginning. At the least, they didn't understand the seriousness of the threat. And uh, they, they are still to this day, um, liberals and progressives generally, they are far more alarmed by anti-communists, I would say, than they are even pro-communists. That's where I want to end the conversation, and I want to go back to 1952. In 1952, Whitaker Chambers published his his memoir entitled Witness, and in it is a letter that he wrote uh, in which he mentions to his children, I believe, that he had said to his wife when he left the Communist Party and renounced communism and uh, and then testified against the communists uh, in terms of uh, very well-documented American judicial proceedings when he joined the other side. He very famously said, I know that we are leaving the winning side to join the losing side. Hmm. That did not look like insanity in 1952. Yeah, yeah but that's right. what explains then that you come to 1989, and by the way, on Christmas Day of 2011, uh, that's going to be the, the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Soviet Union. How did it happen? Yeah, well, it happened because uh, Ronald Reagan, who uh, his favorite book was Whitaker Chambers' Witness, and and could verbatim off the top of his head, I've I've heard this from eyewitnesses many times, while standing in an elevator, turn to you and uh, and, and and quote passages from Witness. Um, the only thing that Ronald Reagan disagreed with Whitaker Chambers on was on that particular point. Uh, Reagan said, no, 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 we are on the winning side, and we're going to win this thing. 
And, and for Reagan, that was part of a faith-based optimism that, that he got uh, from his faith in God, that, uh, that his mother, Nell Reagan, had taught him since, since he was a tiny little boy that, uh, you know, in the end, all things work out for their best according to God's plan. And, you know, you need to be optimistic, Ronald. You need to go out and try to change the world. And Reagan, Reagan was the guy who did that, along with, um, I think, Mikhail Gorbachev was, was critically important. Uh, you know, there are people in America, in the academy, who get Gorbachev wrong. They don't quite understand what it was that he did. But Reagan did it with Gorbachev, with Margaret Thatcher, with uh, John Paul II, Lech Walesa, Vaclav Havel. Uh, but Reagan was critically important. And, and yes, how, how poetically ironic that, that the Soviet Union really ended not when the Berlin Wall fell in, in November 1989, but December 25th, 1991, on, on Christmas Day, uh, a, a day that the communists tried to ban. Uh, and I, I find that um, more than coincidental. And uh, here again, I, I believe that that too has spiritual dimensions and spiritual roots. Well, we've hardly scratched the surface of being able to talk about the crucial issues that are raised for us by the Cold War, but at least we've begun a conversation, a conversation about an issue of history, a period of time that is so close to us and yet growing more distant in our memory. One of our intellectual responsibilities is not to allow this to happen, but to continue to look at our history and understand what it means, especially these recent periods, which were literally world-changing and transforming in their importance. You can just imagine in a very short period of intellectual energy, how things would have been very different had the Cold War ended in a different way. My conversation with Professor Kinger ended where it began, with the battle of ideas. And if anything, what we have learned in looking at the Cold War is the reminder that human history is indeed the legacy and the timetable of great ideological conflicts. Now, that's not all there is to it. You can certainly talk about history in terms of the rising and falling of nations and empires. You can talk about conflict in terms of the conflict between armies and and, and nations, uh, between technologies and all the other movements and developments that shape our history. But at the very core of the Cold War is the essential conflict over ideas and over ideology. Now, it's a complex worldview conflict. For instance, you have the level of economics. When you're talking about communism, you have to almost start there. And so you have the conflict between communism and capitalism in economic terms. But when you're talking about economics, let's remember, you're never actually just talking about economics. Christians of all people are those who recognize that to talk about human beings as economic actors is to define what it means to be human, necessarily to have a vision of the human good, to be able to define justice and to be able to understand what kind of society and economic system is both to serve and to produce. The ideological conflict at the level of economics between capitalism and communism was never just about two systems of economics. It was about two different understandings of humanity, two different understandings of society, two different understandings of, of what meant and makes for the good life, two different understandings of labor and work and, of course, of property. But the worldview conflict of the Cold War was never merely about economics. It's about an entire range of issues. There was a theological dimension to the conflict of the Cold War. And that is one thing that many contemporary Christians simply do not understand nor take into account. 
there were two very different understandings of humanity, two very different understandings of the problem, of the solution, of the end of all things. Let's put it in theological language. For most of the 20th century, it was well understood by Christian intellectuals, missiologists, and by that matter for most pastors and informed laypersons that the great intellectual competitor to Christianity in the 20th century was that of world communism. Now, that's to understand that Christianity has at its very core a narrative, a narrative that is indeed the gospel of Jesus Christ, a narrative that is found in Scripture that defines, first of all, how the world came into being and why it matters, what happened to make the world as it is today with all of its problems. We call that the doctrine of the fall, following the doctrine of creation. And then Christianity essentially points to a doctrine of redemption, which was the atonement accomplished by the Father through the Son for the salvation of sinners. And then we have an eschatology. There is, there is a direction the history is going under the direction of a sovereign God to which it is pointing, and it is an eschatology of a new heaven and a new earth and all that goes with that. Well, the competitor worldview to Christianity in the 20th century, communism also had its own narrative. And by the way, it has an answer to all those same problems, to all those same intellectual questions. How did things come? Well, you cannot talk about communism without the affirmation of an atheistic beginning. That's why what we use the intellectual shorthand to refer to as evolution was so important to the rise of communist theory, because it gave them a, a theory of origins in the same way that Richard Dawkins would later say, that the theory of evolution made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist, well, the doctrine of evolution allowed communists to redefine humanity in, in very, very materialistic terms for a system of thought that is often reduced to dialectical materialism and to a worldview that is inherently materialistic. Now, what is the communist version of the fall? It's class oppression, the oppression of the poor on the part of, of the mighty. The oppression of the proletariat on the part, of course, of the elites, but also of the bourgeoisie, the middle class uh, that sided with the elites rather than with the proletariat. And communism also has a doctrine of redemption. The doctrine of redemption is revolution and, and the revolution of the proletariat. And it also has an eschatology, an eschatology of what is, is held forth as the pure communism of a pure communist society and the emergence of what was called the new communist man. So you have a new humanity in both Christianity and in communism, but they are diametrically opposed. And as a matter of fact, the worldviews are absolutely opposed and in conflict at every significant point. Ideas matter. And that is, of course, true in terms of the conflicts of this day, of our own generation, our own times. You look across the international view, and you can see immediately that intellectual ideological conflicts, conflicts over ideas, continue to divide the world and indeed to produce most of the most hot conflicts around the world today. But looking back at the Cold War, we need to recognize that here we have a classic example, a classic example that we need to look at very honestly and to which we need to return rather regularly. That's why the conversation with Professor Kinger, I think, was so invaluable. And while looking at his books and his writings and those of others who deal with this issue, I think especially with all of the data that's now coming to us, that's something that a lot of people don't recognize. The, the fall of the Soviet Union has eventually led to the opening of the Soviet archives, including the archives of the KGB. And over time, as I said, the truth will out, and the truth is coming out, and it is undeniable in terms of the communist world conspiracy, in terms, as Professor Kinger talked about, of the, of the common turn, in terms of the influence of, uh, of their agents and fellow travelers, as they were called, and progressive intellectuals in the United States and other Western nations during that time. I want to end in a different way, a way that is distinctively Christian, in terms of affirming what the Cold War tells us in retrospect about the necessity on the part of Christians of having a providential understanding of history. 
Henry Ford once infamously said that history is just the record of one thing after another. In other words, there's no great meaning there. There's no great significance there. Christians know that's not true. As we are instructed by Scripture in terms of its clear teachings and also in terms of its, of its contents and the narrative, the historical narratives that it displays, with Christianity comes a distinctive understanding of history as well and the meaningfulness of history in terms of the responsibility of human agents as actors on the world stage and the importance of human endeavor and indeed the moral judgment of God upon nations and upon empires. The fall of the Soviet Union, we need to say, with a completely straight face and with a bold moral assertion, was one of the happiest things that could have happened in the 20th century. The murderous nature, the calamitous nature, the absolutely violent nature of the communist regime in the Soviet Union is almost beyond human understanding. The Cold War, well, we need to be thankful that it remained cold. Had it gone hot, which is to say, with a full-blown nuclear exchange, well, human history would have been both sadder, more tragic, and for that matter, radically different. The end of the Cold War was a great gift. And we can either look at that and think it was just a one thing happening after another, or we can look back at it as Christians must and say, here was an empire that fell, and the, the seeds of its destruction were in the very ideas that brought the empire to power. That is a judgment not only upon the Soviet Union, but upon any entity, any state, any organization, or any individual who would set himself or itself over against the ultimate purposes of God. Let's remember, the end of the story, whether you're a communist or a Christian, is eschatology. Before signing off, I want to invite you to start making your plans to be here at Southern Seminary for our annual Give Me an Answer conference for college students. It's going to be on the campus from February the 17th to the 18th of 2012. The theme of the conference this year is radical. Join David Platt, Kevin DeYoung, Russell Moore, and me as we consider how the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ lays claim on the entirety of our lives. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.